All right, we are continuing and starting to finish our continuing study here on um, the seven churches that are represented in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. I say starting to finish because we are going to be looking at the final of the seven letters to these seven churches starting in Revelation chapter three, verse 14. Uh, I I'm going to split this one into two studies, so we're just going to do the first half of this last one today. It's a significant one and uh, lots of information in it, so I knew I'd be stretched to try to jam it all into one study, so we're going to split it into two. Because of home church next week, that means uh, part two will be two weeks from today, Lord willing. Uh, the, uh, the main idea behind, why, again, why I started this study is uh, earlier this year, we passed our 35th anniversary as a church and uh, it just was for me it was a it it caused me to take a moment and pause and reflect on our 35 years of church history and uh, all of the things that I've experienced and and caused me to just check in with the Lord which is good to do all the time anyway but uh, the passing the anniversary caused me to do so maybe in a different way than I would normally do. Uh, check in with the Lord in terms of where we at as a church, what's, what's the Lord's consideration, and, and ultimately what's his evaluation. These seven letters written to these seven churches are all evaluation letters. Um, the, the, the image, remember, from chapter one is there's a, a vision that, the very first vision in a, a series of visions in the book of Revelation that the Lord gives to the apostle John. He sees the Lord Jesus in the context of the high priest of the old covenant. But he's not serving in the old covenant temple. He's serving in a greater heavenly new covenant temple. And like in the temple of the old covenant, there were lampstands that populated the interior of the temple structure in order to light that structure. The lampstands being the only light source within the structure of the temple. And the Lord in chapter one, as he reveals himself to John, he reveals himself as the one standing among and then moving among the seven lampstands, which he then identifies with the seven churches. So our working concept is each one of these seven churches is a lampstand with the Lord as the high priest whose primary job on a daily basis in the temple was to visit each lampstand within the temple structure and to evaluate it, to look at the lamps on the lampstand to see how much oil needed to be replenished in those lamps, and then to trim the wicks, the, the replenishing of the oil, we're, we're connecting to the Lord's, the Lord's encouraging, filling influences in the church, and the trimming of the lamps, the, the wicks, has to do with the Lord looking at things that need to be removed so that the light of the church can shine as it should. And so that's what the Lord does with each one of these seven churches. He, he visits them individually, he looks at them with, with focused attention, and then he gives them his evaluations. And one thing that should be standing out to us by now is that the Lord's evaluations of these seven churches are not going to be identical to how they see themselves. Um, you know, we all tend to see ourselves, this is not just true of churches, this is true of everyone, uh, no matter what modern psychology 
is going to try to tell you. Uh, we all tend to see ourselves more positively. Uh, we all tend to see ourselves in a, in a better light than the reality of who we are and what we're really like and how we're really living. And this is even true for believers. It's even true for churches, true churches. And all seven of these are true churches. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't be writing to them. Once a church is no longer a true church whatsoever, the Lord will lose interest in that group and he will disconnect as he had warned the very first of the seven churches, there comes a point if a church drifts so far from the Lord that he describes, I will remove the lampstand from its place, meaning he will no longer identify it as one of his churches at all. And then there's no longer any communication from him to that particular congregation. But here in this circumstance, we have the Lord still writing to these seven. Some of them are in a much healthier, better place than others. Like in our last study, Philadelphia, very, very healthy church. Not a perfect church, but very healthy church. This one, the church in Laodicea, uh, most likely, I, I think most commentators agree, I, I certainly see this as well, uh, the, the most unhealthy of all of the seven churches. So let me read the entire letter to the Laodiceans. It's not very long, verses 14 through 22. And as I said, we won't cover the entire letter today, but um, we'll cover at least the first portion of it. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is probably as far as we'll get today, but let me read on. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So I'll emphasize once more this, um, this last verse, verse 22. It's the one verse that occurs in all seven of the letters. And it is, um, it's, it's our basic principle of, of how it is that we can find some point of application in each one of these seven letters to our circumstances. Even if we don't find identical comparisons between ourselves as a church and any one of these seven churches, there are lessons to be learned from all of them because as the Lord uh, emphasizes to each one, if you have spiritual ears, if you have discerning ears, if you're really listening to what I'm saying to this church, 
for us 2,000 years ago in a far distant removed culture, much unlike the culture we live in today in terms of you know, just the, the practicalities of what life was like. Nevertheless, um, we can hear what the Spirit said to them and find application to what the Spirit would be saying to us if we were one of the seven uh, as it was written in those days. All right, so for each one of these letters, I've given some brief background of what was going on in the city, the history of the city, the, the nature of what distinguished that particular city because the Lord chose, and I love how the Lord does this. He did it with all seven of them. He chose circumstances that were very familiar, not just to the Christians in Laodicea, but circumstances very familiar to anyone that lived in Laodicea. And he chose to use those historic and cultural reference points to then make a spiritual point to his people in terms of how he was evaluating their spiritual condition. All right, so Laodicea was located, again, all these seven uh, cities were in a, a circular pattern on the, on the main land just uh, opposite the small island where John was imprisoned as he was writing this letter. And they were all connected by a Roman road and a Roman postal route. And Laodicea being the seventh, if, if, if Ephesus was the first city, Laodicea was completing that circle and you would then continue on to Ephesus to, to complete the postal route. And uh, it also happened to be located right at the juncture of two very important trade routes that the uh, Roman Empire used to connect to the eastern part uh, as, it, as the empire moved into its farthest reaches on the east and then did trade with the nations that were to the far east. So as a result, there was lots and lots of business that was being done in Laodicea. As a result, also, it was, of these seven cities, the wealthiest of the seven cities. Lots of prosperity, lots of finance. Uh, what the, the city was known for, more than anything else, were three industries. Uh, they had a, a very prosperous, very active banking industry. Uh, there, were, there were people that would come from all over the region in order to do their banking in Laodicea. Uh, they were known for their garment industry and specifically the sheep in this, in this part, this region of the world, uh, for some unknown reason, they tended to all be black uh, in their wool and a very luxurious quality of wool. Uh, some people speculate it was because of the, the nature of the water that they drank or something to do with the minerals in the soil, but the, the, the sheep produced this luxurious black wool, <coughs> which was then harvested and woven into these special black garments, which were highly prized throughout the empire. And then third, there was a very famous medical school in this area, and they were known for two things. They were known for a, an ear salve. When, whenever you had ear problems, you would go to the medical school and they'd rub this salve in your ear to uh, hopefully try to resolve what your ear problem was. And a, an eye salve that was compounded only in this region. It was the only place in the world where this particular eye salve was produced and was kind of touted as um, a cure-all for any eye problems, any eyesight problems that people had. Uh, in terms of worship, uh, the spirituality of the city, they had the normal um, 
attention given to Greek and Roman gods, like there was a temple to Zeus, there was a temple to a local god from ancient history that still continued to this day. But the primary focus of worship in the city of Laodicea that distinguished it from the other seven cities was emperor worship. Now, all seven of the cities had an issue with that because emperor worship was a growing cult in those days. But here in Laodicea, it was really highlighted. It was really focused on. And Laodicea itself was considered by the emperor to be the most uh, loyal city in this entire region. There had been a few years before a rebellion against the Roman Empire that had risen up in this region. And during that rebellion, all of the other six cities had turned against the emperor and against the, Ro the Roman Empire, except for Laodicea. They remained true and faithful throughout that rebellion. And so the emperor looked upon the city very favorably. And of course, they took great pride in the fact that they uh, had remained true and loyal to the emperor and uh, the, the temple that was dedicated to the worship of the empire and to the emperor in, in particular was uh, kind of the focal point of the religious life of the city. Now, all of those details that I've just described, the Lord finds a way to highlight and then apply that in some spiritual way in the details of the letter that we're going to be uh, looking at. All right, now for each one of the seven, the Lord, as I've described, reintroduces himself to the church. Again, these are true churches. Therefore, these are people that already know the Lord. They've heard the gospel. They understand that Jesus is Lord. They understand that Jesus is Savior. They understand the, at least the basics and the essentials of what define the Christian faith. But the Lord chose in each of the seven cases to, to highlight aspects of who he was in a way that would speak to the issues that they were dealing with or struggling with. And his reintroductions are unique to each one of the seven churches so that he wants himself known in a particular way to the Laodiceans. So he reintroduces himself three ways to this church. And these are all found in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of, and this is the Lord identifying himself, the words of the amen. Now, I've read this multiple times. I've taught this particular letter more than once before. I've even taught you this before, but for some reason this, this first introductory um, reminder of the Lord to the church in Laodicea really caught my attention in a way it, it hadn't before. How many of you have ever thought in terms of the listing of the names. Remember years ago, we did a study on all of the names of the Lord throughout scripture. How many of you ever think about the Lord Jesus as this is one of his titles, a self-designation. This is how he sees himself and he, how he wants us to see him. The Lord Jesus is the amen. It's not just, it's just not a, a common focus in our, in our attention. We'll, we'll uh, focus a little bit on it in just a moment. So he says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, that's his second designation, and the beginning of God's creation. Now, he doesn't bother to explain any of these three. I'm going to explain what he chose not to explain just so that we don't miss the point. It's entirely possible that the Laodicean Christians missed 
the big points of how he was reintroducing himself. And I just think it's interesting that there are times when the Lord just declares truth to us and lets it just sit on our mind and heart without giving us a lot of explanation connected to it. And I think it's meant to then, when he does it this way, without attaching a lot of explanation, it's meant to stir us, it's meant to stimulate us. You know, if, I, if, if the Lord were to write this church a letter, and I'm one of the responsible ones to govern and lead and guide the church and to teach the church, and if the Lord were to introduce himself to Tree of Life in Northridge, California today and say, I am writing to you as the amen, I'm not just gonna read past that and run on to the rest of the letter and say, oh, all the good stuff is after that. There's some good stuff right in that, but what is that good stuff? So if I asked you this morning, can you, can you clearly grasp without explanation what it, what it is that he meant when he said, I am the amen? And if we can't say that with certainty, then that's a stimulator to, okay, we need to dig in right at that point. So let's do that. Um, and I'm, uh, again, on this one, I'm following better teachers than myself, but I think they've made a, 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 an important and good connection. Turn with me, if you would, back to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 65. I mentioned this, I think, more than once already in this series of studies that the book of Revelation has layered Old Testament reference points in it without addresses. Do you, you, know, you understand what I mean? It's not like the Lord says to the Laodiceans, I'm writing to you as the amen, and then in parentheses he has Isaiah 65. I actually, I think that would be pretty cool if he did that, because it would certainly help me, but um, he just chooses to make the declaration, and if we're stirred to wonder about it, and to consider it, and to think about it, and to dig in at that point, there's the real possibility, by the Spirit's help, that we will find those connections, and uh, others have found this connection in Isaiah 65. I think it's a good one. So what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna focus our attention on verse 16, but before we get to verse 16, let me just read the first couple of three verses of the chapter because it kind of sets the context of why he said what he said in verse 16. So Isaiah 65, verse one. This is the Lord speaking. He's speaking to his people and they're not in a good and healthy place as he's speaking. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, this is the Lord speaking to people. Here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So if it's a nation that was not called by his name, what nation is he talking about? He's talking about a Gentile nation outside of the boundaries of his covenant people. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually. 
sacrificing in gardens. Now, who are they sacrificing to by implication? Not to him. They're sacrificing. Maybe they, they're even mentioning the name of the Lord, but they're certainly in their heart, they're worshiping idolatrous, you know, human invented gods. And there may even be some combining of true worship with false worship. And anytime, as we've studied through these seven letters, anytime you combine true worship with false worship, what do you end up with? False worship. True worship is pure, and there's only truth in the, in the, in the expression of true worship. Anytime you add false elements to true worship, it only corrupts the true worship. It's not that true worship then swallows up the false elements and incorporates them and says, well, is this is still true worship. It becomes false in the combination. So they're sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. So the idea here is these are a people that he's speaking to at the beginning of the chapter who are self-evaluating themselves as what? I am a holy person. I have got my spiritual life together. But in the Lord's evaluation, what are they actually? They're a rebellious, corrupted people. So what does that context have to do with the letter that we're reading in Revelation 3 to the Laodiceans and the connection that Jesus says to them? First thing he says by way of introducing, reintroducing himself to an unhealthy church, I am the amen. Well, we'll see the connection in verse 16 in just a moment, but the point is, this is capturing where the Laodiceans were. They were claiming that they were a holy people they were self-evaluating themselves as things are in a good place in my spiritual life. And we'll, we'll identify from the letter's details exactly what they were basing that, that false and deceptive self-evaluation on. They were basing their sense of I'm in a good place on something entirely different than what the Lord says we should really base that evaluation on. But the Lord's evaluation was something entirely different. And that's what, that's the, that's the headbutting that's gonna happen in this letter is the church sees itself in one way, the Lord sees them in an entirely different way. All right, so let's come to verse 16 now. And now in between the verses I read and, and this verse, the Lord has intervened. And the Lord has, has rescued a people for himself. And now he's describing what life will be like after that rescue. So that he who blesses himself in the land, that being the promised land, shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles, and what are the former troubles? The former troubles are all of the consequences we experience in life when we go our own way and disregard and ignore the way of the Lord. Doesn't mean that there aren't troubles if we're truly walking with the Lord. I think there are, really, if you walk for any length of time with the Lord, in spirit and in truth, you understand that walking with the Lord doesn't guarantee you a trouble 
free life, right? Am I right or am I wrong? Walking with the Lord doesn't guarantee you a trouble-free life, but what it does guarantee you is a way to walk through those troubles that number one, and first, more than anything else, more importantly than anything else, pleases the Lord, serves his purpose, and accomplishes things in you so that you can look back on it later and say, while it may have been trouble externally to me, in what it produced in my life, it was actually the blessing of the Lord. There are many things in my younger life in the Lord that I can look back on and say, I would never have chosen this experience for myself. But, but look what that produced in me by the grace of God. And so I don't look back on it and say, oh, this is a horrible thing that happened to me. I look back on it and say, this is actually, for me, the wonderful thing that happened to me because I would not have changed in the way that I did had I not gone through that by the grace of God and be changed by it in the way that God's grace changed me. So he says, he who blesses himself shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. All right, so where do we get the connection to the amen concept as the Lord introduces himself to the Laodiceans? It's not obvious in our text, our English translation, but in the original text, in verse 16, the Lord says it twice. He introduces himself twice in verse 16. He designates himself twice, but the literal translation is this. He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of Amen. That's what he actually says. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of Amen. Now, in our, in our simple definition of amen, you understand that it, it can carry this concept. The word amen can carry the concept of so be it. It's kind of like an affirmation. You know, when we say at the end of our prayers, generally speaking, how many of you, not every single time, but how many of you often say the word amen when you end your prayer to the Lord? All right? Is it just like, the, the magic word that will get the results and so you say it at the end of your prayer? If you don't say the word, you don't get the prize? Is that, is that the way the word amen works? What are you thinking when you say the word amen? Lord, this is what I certainly desire for you to do. I'm asking you, it's, I'm not demanding this of you, I'm asking of you, when I say amen, I'm asking for you to make it so, right? And it has that sense. But it, it also has an even greater sense as a word which signifies a kind of a stamp of authenticity. A stamp of this is certainly true. And when he uses it as a self-designation, as a name, he's saying, I'm the true one. I'm the authentic one. The God of all men is the only true and authentic God in the midst of a world that's given over to worshiping everything under the sun and even the sun itself. And I'm talking about the natural sun as opposed to, of course, the son of God. So the, the idea is he is wanting the Laodiceans to know they're in the midst of a culture that is, a, it's a corrupted culture. It's given over to idolatry of various kinds. And, 
and this city prides itself on its loyalty to the one who sits on the throne, but the throne in Rome rather than the throne in heaven. The one who has called himself from Rome a God among men. That's who the Caesar called himself to be. And so when the Lord says to the Laodiceans, and we'll head back to uh, Revelation 3 now. When he says to the Laodiceans, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen. He is calling back to Isaiah 65. He's calling himself the God of truth in the sense of the authentic and true and only authentic God. And reminding them that uh, any attention that is split between him and the emperor is a mixture which then turns their previously true worship into only false worship. Uh, it, it can't be for a true believer in Laodicea that 99% of their adoration is given to Jesus and 1% is given to Caesar in Rome. If that 1% exists in their heart, for whatever reason, we'll see what the reason was because it did exist in their hearts, sadly, tragically. Um, it's now 100% false, not 99% true. And so from first word, he reminds them. Second designation, self-identifier. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Um, I believe this is a reference to the same concern. And again, uh, if you can keep your place there. And if you want to turn over with me to 2 Timothy. I believe this is a reference to a concern that Paul highlighted in a personal letter he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, Timothy was not far, physically speaking, as Paul wrote this letter to Timothy from the Laodiceans. Ephesus was a near city to, Ephesus, uh, to uh, Laodicea. And Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus at that time. And in this section of 2 Timothy 2, what Paul is doing is, for the sake of this young pastor, he's distinguishing principles of true discipleship from, from false or corrupted or mixed discipleship. And I'll read from verse 8, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. Paul, as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, was in a Roman prison for no other reason than preaching the gospel. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him if we deny him he also will deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself um, there are extreme cases 
where believers, because of the pressure of a persecuting surrounding culture and society, can place so much pressure on the heart of a believer that that believer just cracks, just breaks at a certain point and releases their exclusive loyalty to Christ as Lord and Savior and says in that moment of extreme pressure, whatever the culture wants them to say to just alleviate that pressure. Just stop persecuting me. Just leave, you know, leave me be. Let me live in peace. I'll say anything you want me to say. And in those extreme moments, <clears throat> the word of the Lord is regarding the nature of our discipleship in that moment. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Our faithlessness is not a measurement of his faithfulness. Because he, while we can potentially, like Peter in in the courtyard that night that Jesus was arrested, um, we may deny him, but he will never deny himself. And so here to the Laodiceans who were compromising their allegiance to Christ in order to accommodate the surrounding culture for a very specific, strong motivating reason, the Lord reminds them, I'm the faithful and true witness. I will not deny myself even if you are denying me. And again, <clears throat> their denial is not necessarily as blatant as Peter's was that night. How blatant was Peter's denial the night Jesus was arrested? I don't even know this guy because I'm afraid, this is what was going on in his mind and heart, I'm afraid that if, if I say I know him, if I say I, I'm related to him, if I say I'm a follower of his, they're gonna do to me the same things they're now doing to him and I can't stand the idea of having to endure that. So his was a, an extremely blatant denial, but there are much more subtle denials of the Lord. It can be just as subtle as the moment where you should speak up, you just choose not to because you're afraid of the reaction that you'll get from those in the culture that don't want to hear what you have to say. So anyway, the Lord reintroduces re, re himself to them and he says, I am the faithful and true witness. He's the one that remains true and faithful to the gospel and to the, the reality of who he is. He will never deny himself. And then the third identifier as he says to them, I am the beginning of God's creation. It's an interesting designation and, it's, and the question is why did he, not is that true, of course it's true. It's asserted in scripture from Genesis chapter one all the way through Revelation and the end of the book. But why did he, why did he bring this up to the Laodiceans? So um, we'll talk in, in more detail in just a moment, but there, there was a, a sister church to the Laodiceans that we're, I think, a little bit more familiar with, a close city. It was just a few miles away. It was the city of Colossae, and there was a true church in that city as well. And of course, that's the church that the letter to the Colossians was written to, to address. And in that letter, in fact, let's turn, let's turn to Colossians And look, let's look for just a moment at chapter four. Just, I'm just gonna highlight one verse. This is just a practical verse 
as Paul was giving instructions to the Colossians about the, what was to be done with the letter that they had received from him, the Colossian letter. And he references the church, to the, the church of the Laodiceans. Paul says, well, I'll read 15 to 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter, the Colossian letter, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there are two letters. One was sent first to the Colossian church. One was sent first to the Laodicean church. That letter is not Revelation chapter 3, the letter that we're studying. It's a different letter. It's a letter written by Paul. There's different theories about why don't we have a letter to the Laodiceans in the New Testament among the other letters of Paul. Uh, some believe, some scholars believe it was just simply lost to history and it was the Lord's intention for it to be lost. We don't know why. That's at least possible. Others believe that it, it was simply the letter to the Ephesians that had made its way to the Laodicean church. And now he wanted that letter to be carried by messenger to the Colossian church and read among them as well. You understand that in those days, they didn't have full copies of the New Testament. Every member of the church, like you, all have your own copy of the Bible. Uh, these letters were precious as apostles wrote them and distributed them to the churches. They were then carried by messenger between the churches so that everyone could benefit from reading this new portion of God's revealed word. All right, so with that, so just so you understand the connection, let's go back to chapter one of Colossians. And we're looking at why did the Lord mention to the Laodiceans that he is the beginning of the creation of God. It's from this portion in Colossians, it's a concept that Paul was focused on at this particular time in his ministry. And it starts in verse 15 of Colossians one. And he's talking about Christ and he describes him this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I don't have time to do a full theological development of that phrase, but simply there's a, an error connected to that. The error is simply that uh, Paul is saying that Jesus is the first of all the created things that God ever made. That is not true. Jesus himself was never created. Christ was never created. The Son of God was never created. He is um, one of the triune God who has always existed. But this designation, firstborn of all creation, is using family imagery to describe that as a father passes on his authority in his household, he passes it to whom? To the firstborn son. That's who would carry on the father's authority to the next generation. It's basically declaring that all of the father's authority is invested in the son of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through, this is through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The emphasis of why he 
reintroduces him to the Laodicean churches that he wants them to understand that if they're going to be a true church, because the fact that he's writing this letter, as unhealthy as they are in this present moment, the fact that he's writing the letter means there's still a hope, there's still a possibility, they still could turn, they still could change, they still could, by the grace of God, recover themselves to a healthy place. But this is the starting point. He must be preeminent in their hearts. And he allows no room to be given to the acknowledgement of Zeus. No room to be given to the local deity that had been worshipped for generations. And certainly no room given to the worship of the emperor who sits on the throne in Rome. Other than just for practical political purposes only, but zero amount of worship can be given in that direction if they're going to remain true and allegiant to him as the first of God's creation, the beginning of all things that God will accomplish in history. All right, back to Revelation 3. We've finished our introduction. What does he have to say now? What's the Lord's evaluation of the church? How does he look at them? Does he see them the same way they see themselves? And the obvious answer is, no, they see themselves much more favorably than how he sees them. And one of the tricks, it's not a trick, you understand, it's just a figure of speech, but one of the tricks of learning how to be a healthy church is you have to be willing to, to at least cry out, Lord, help us to see ourselves from your perspective. And if at any point we are in a, a place or in a pattern or in a, a, a set of, of ways of doing things that is not pleasing to you, you have to be willing corporately, not just individually, have to be willing to give up the ways that, that pleased ourselves in order to embrace what it means to fully be pleasing to him. So his evaluation starts in verse 15, and he says something similar to them that he says to almost all of the other churches, the others, the others of the seven. Verse 15, I know your works. So we're, we're heading in a good direction here, right? It seems like he's going to say something pleasing, something that's, that's, that's in his sight, okay, this is good. You've got this going for you. I, you know, I'm on board with what I see among you. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold nor hot or hot so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth so all of what he just said about hot cold lukewarm and spitting is connected to their works what does that tell us about their works there's nothing that he sees works remember are activity in the church things that the church is focused on doing and here's the bottom line of what every church should be thinking, is what we're doing what the Lord wants us to be doing? Is what we're doing pleasing to the Lord? Is what we're doing serving his purposes? Is what we're doing in, in our activities, is it accomplishing 
what he wants us to accomplish because he brought us together for the purpose of serving him. We don't get together as a church just because it serves our own individual purpose. I will just tell you right now, and I'm one of the pastors of the church, if it weren't for the concept that the Lord has called the church together to serve his purpose, I wouldn't even come to church. Me. I had this thought this morning, I'm going to be real honest with you. My football team is playing at 10 a.m. this morning. That means they've been playing for 25 minutes and they're on national TV and it's an important game. I would have loved to be home this morning, sipping a cup of coffee, maybe have some, some snack with that, watching my team go down in flames as they often do. That's what I would have loved to be doing this morning. But I'm not doing that, why? I, I, I know and understand I'm here to serve the Lord's purpose. But if, if not for that, then what, is, what are our activities for then? He says, I know your works, but neither here nor any other verse in this short letter to the Laodiceans, there's not a single, there's not a single word of commendation. There's not a single pat on the back. Almost every other letter is filled with encouraging words as the Lord sees the good things that are going on in the lives of the churches. This one, he has no good thing to say to them whatsoever. There is no worse place you can reach as a church. Filled with activity, but none of it has any eternal value or significance whatsoever. On the final day, unless they had changed after they received this letter, they're going to spread their works out, so to speak, before the throne of God for his evaluation. And he's gonna say, okay, I'm gonna evaluate this, and it's either gonna be gold, silver, and precious stone quality stuff, or it's gonna be wood, hay, and stubble. And every single thing they did ended up in the wood, hay, and stubble burned up pile. It's gonna just be ash in the end. Nothing of lasting and eternal value. Think of it, an entire church functioning, living and meeting and doing stuff and none of it meaning anything. None of it. Why? He says, he uses this whole imagery. I've, I've taught this before. You might remember it before, from before, but he starts talking about hot and cold and lukewarm. What is he talking about? He's talking about water. There was a problem. There were many, uh, there were many, practical benefits of living in Laodicea. Like I said, the richest of the seven cities. But they had one great problem as a city. And the problem was there was no natural water source available for the city. Kind of like the city of Los Angeles brings all of its water from Northern California, right? Any of you driven past the big aqueduct that, that brings all this water from Northern California to us? And if that if that aqueduct were to be destroyed and that water were not to get to the city, it would not be long before this city would be in big trouble. I'm talking about the people living in the city. That's the circumstance of Laodicea. The Romans, this is a Roman city, the Romans were amazing engineers. And they had, they had constructed an aqueduct uh, and brought in water from six miles away. There was, um, there was a, um, natural spring that produced hot mineral water 
some six miles to the south of the city of Laodicea. And the Romans constructed a piping system to bring that water all the way to Laodicea. And it came out of the ground hot and bubbling and filled with minerals. And it was, it was water that was normally used for, uh, like Michael, what's the name of that place up north that you sometimes like to go to with the hot? Yeah, Avila Hot Springs, just uh, north of, of um, San Luis Obispo, I think it is, or just right in that vicinity of San Luis Obispo. Michael loves to just go and you know sit and soak in the hot springs. And traditionally, for generations and generations and generations of history, people seek out hot springs to sit in them because there's kind of a, a healing benefit of, of sitting in hot mineral water. And there's a truth about that. There is a healing benefit to sitting in hot mineral water. But when it comes to drinking hot mineral water, that's not the ideal, is it? No. So what happened is they had no water source, so they piped in this water, which started out of the ground as hot mineral water, but it had to travel six miles through Roman pipes. And by the time it reached the city, what was the circumstance of the water? It was still mineral water, but now by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm. It was no longer hot. And yet the people had to drink it. And so what they would do, and interestingly, even to the 21st century, people that live in that area, they still get their water from the same source. And so they get the water when it comes into town and they place it in earthen jars and allow it to cool down until it's drinkable and usable for them. The problem though is there's still this mineral content so it has to be filtered nowadays, but in ancient days, they didn't have water filters like that. It was filled with calcium carbonate, this mineral from the source. And the combination of this calcium carbonate rich water with the temperature when it arrived in town, this warm water, meant that if you drank the water fresh out of the sources, it came into Laodicea, it would function as what is known as an emetic. Do you, anyone notice what that is? Yeah, it's a water that is designed, is some, something you drink that is designed to, to stimulate the, uh, the, the, the vomiting reflex. And when the Lord says in verse uh, 16, so because you are lukewarm, he's talking about the people He's using their water circumstance, which they, they lived with every day, so they're well familiar with it, but he says, no, I'm really talking about you. I'm using your water to talk to you, to expose your heart to yourself. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's not, it's not like this. The Lord's picturing himself, okay, I'm gonna take a sip of the Laodicean church. It's not like that. <laughs> What he uses a word in the original text which literally means to vomit. He's saying, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna t I'm gonna evaluate my church. I'm gonna take a nice big drink of my church. And as it reaches his stomach, it stimulates him, but in all the wrong ways. And he vomits them out of his mouth. It's a really dramatic description and it's one meant to grab their attention. Just imagine the Lord visiting Tree of Life and I'm, gonna just, I'm just gonna soak in the, the, the spiritual condition of Tree of Life and as he soaks it in, he just like turns around and vomits out of his mouth 
what he soaked in from us. That's the imagery. It's, it's meant to, to say your self-evaluation is so far off. It's completely the opposite of how you see yourself to how the Lord not only sees you, but how the Lord experiences you. Because he is in fellowship with his people and they are soaking in something, carrying something within themselves, like the calcium carbonate was carried in the water that, that turned his stomach. So what had they soaked in from the surrounding society and culture? They had soaked in a compromising condition to the culture around them. Why? Let's read on. He says um, in verse, let's see, we're to verse six, uh, 17, yes. For you say, this is their self-evaluation. This is how they feel about themselves. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are, this is his evaluation now. He sees them differently than they see themselves. You are wretched. I mean, I want you to think about the, the worst case scenario homeless person you've recently seen. That's what they were like. Spiritually. Pitiable. Poor. Um, they saw themselves as rich. They were actually spiritually impoverished. Not in a good way, like, I'm aware of my neediness for the Lord, but they, they actually were empty of anything of real, enduring, eternal value. They were blind. They had no spiritual discernment. They'd lost all their ability to discern. And they're naked. Biblically, that's an image of given over to sin. You know, we're, we're clothed in the book of Revelation later with robes of righteousness. That's the white garments of the saints. And later in, in our study next time, we'll see that he counsels them to buy white garments in contrast and in comparison to the famous black garments that were sold in the city and valued so highly. He's saying, you, you're, you think you're fine, but you're walking in unrighteousness. And in order to be in right relationship with me, you need to walk in righteousness. Now, the, the image here, the hot, cold, lukewarm, I, I've described this before, but it's, it's one of the most commonly misunderstood and misapplied verses or passages anywhere in the Bible. Uh, there's kind of a Christian tradition that grew up around these verses, hot, cold, lukewarm. Um, the idea being that uh, traditionally a hot Christian was what? The best of Christians, on fire for the Lord. I, my heart is filled with, with zeal for the Lord. I wanna be a hot Christian. Cold Christian traditionally is the worst you can get, right? Because if your heart is cold toward the Lord, you're disinterested, you're disengaged, you're disconnected, you're just focused on yourself. So hot is great, cold is bad, lukewarm is kind of in the middle, but that's not how the Lord describes it. He says here, I wish, or verse 15, in our translation says, would that you were, the New American Standard, I think, translates it in a more powerful way. The Lord says, I wish that you were either cold or hot. Why would the Lord ever wish that they were cold if cold is the worst? Cold is not the worst in this image. Cold is one of the two best conditions. I, hot is good, cold is good. The only bad option is lukewarm. Why? Because the sister cities nearby, one was Hierapolis, 
they were also, just like the city to the south, they were famous for their hot springs. So those hot springs, people came from far and wide to sit in the Hierapolis hot springs to be healed of their various ailments. And it was therefore a useful water, not for drinking, but for healing purposes. The city of Colossae, which was also close by, was famous not for hot waters, but for its cold mountain spring water. Kind of like, you know, and I'm not describing the true quality of the water. I don't know the true quality of the water, but Arrowhead Spring water, I remember for years and years, you could get water that supposedly bottled at the foot of the Arrowhead Mountains, not too far from here. And Colossi had this, this wonderful cold mountain water that people valued for its drinking purposes. So hot water is useful for healing. Cold water is useful for refreshment. Lukewarm water is useful for vomiting. That's the point he's making. I wish that you were, you know, you were useful in my kingdom service for healing purposes. And I'm not talking about miraculous healing, just that you're, you're out there putting the world back together. You're out there putting broken lives back together. Or I wish that you were useful like the Colossians for refreshing purposes. As people interact with you in the, in the surrounding society and culture, they're going to be refreshed by the, the, the beauty of your heart's devotion to the Lord and your adherence and allegiance to the gospel. But instead, you're somewhere in the middle. And, and the only reaction that I get from you is to want to vomit you out of my mouth. The idea is they had compromised. And what was the reason they were compromising? It's connected to the thing that they most valued about themselves. Again, verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered. How did business get done in the city of Colossae? It was all imperial business. And you remember from a previous description, the other churches had to struggle with the same thing, but they struggled more successfully. And that is to do business in the empire, you had to be a member in good standing of the various business guilds. And in order to be a member in good standing, you had to go and sacrifice to the God in charge of that business, who was the emperor. And you had to be willing to public, publicly proclaim in front of the other guild members, Caesar is Lord. What had happened in Laodicea is in order to maintain their business, in order to maintain their level of prosperity that they so enjoyed, they were willing to publicly proclaim Caesar is Lord, knowing full well he wasn't, only Jesus truly was. But for the sake of lining their pockets, that's a small compromise I'm willing to make. The Lord says, I look at that and it makes me want to throw up. It makes me sick. So our takeaway is we live in a culture we live in a society. It's not identical to the Laodicean culture and society, but there are so many pressures on our lives to get us to compromise the truths of God's word. Are we gonna be remain allegiant to him and him alone? Or are we gonna make little compromises in order to just get along with the society that wants us to be something other than what the Lord calls us to be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which challenges us which uh, speaks to our hearts and which calls us to follow you in faithfulness 
like the one who is the faithful and true witness, the God of our men. May we, may we uh, walk in his footsteps and we, may, we be, uh, may we be more pleasing to you as our takeaway from having considered this letter to the Laodiceans. We ask that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.